Welcome to Miracle Nutrition with Hardy White. I'm Hardy White. Join me now, won't you? I usually say what you join me for, but it's just, in general, you can join me too, for everything. When I was a child, I remember hearing a song that said, I have a brand new pair of roller skates, and you have a brand new key. Now, I did not know that roller skates required a key. I'm still not exactly sure what that is. I guess maybe the kind of clip onto your shoe. I haven't a clue. But at the time, I certainly didn't think there was a connection between roller skates and keys. I thought these two people in the song just had two new things. And they were going to get together. And it was sort of a surrealist song, you know, like, you have a brand new hat. I got a brand new shovel. Ding, ding, doo, boo. Now we have a song. That kind of thing. I thought it was just des- disparate elements come together. And when they do, they create something poetic as a third element. You know, so if I did bring that hat and shovel together, the hat and shovels my old bar had, we had lots of things just kind of bar food, heavy snack, heavy nosh, we'd say. And then we made our own beverages. We had all sorts of kind of things. Sweet ciders. And then we'd have a beverage, traditional beverage made out of the old water from your rice. You go, it's not like sake. It's not like sake at all. It's disgusting. And I think you can get disease from it. But that's a lot of good things in life also bring with them disease or misery. Or something like that. And we understand that now. So, oh, I love cheesecake so much. But it brings the, the cheesecake plague, the flesh-eating cheesecake disease. I don't know, it may. That'd be terrible. People would still eat it. That's the thing. Look at alcohol. There's no way that there's a poison industry and that people drink it down and that it's love. Oh, it's a social lubricant. You're being lubricated with a solvent. So I don't know if, you, if you're doing that with the rest of your machinery, it's going to eat away a lot of the rubber parts. And you have rubber parts. They're not made of rubber, but they're associated with it. Listen, I'm all for doing the healthy thing, but I also like taking risks, which is why I eat. I'll eat something that's uh, made of oats, but with a tiny little time bomb in it. And sometimes I'll be able to pass the tiny time bomb before it explodes. That's the whole thing. It's like a kind of Russian roulette with your colon. Let's get it out before something happens to it. I wonder if it's that way, if there's any food like that. It's like you have to evacuate, you have to bowel movement it out in a certain period of time, or you're doomed. People will be drinking a lot of water or eating oat bran or something, trying to get it out. What a fun game. I think of the, these are the type of things I think of. I used to detest comedians that said that in the... That was a big thing to say in the 70s. This is how my mind works or something. Yeah, it doesn't... I don't know. It's like you're thinking too highly of yourself or something, I would think. You know, it's not that great what your mind is doing. 
You say, oh, you, might, you think I'm crazy. No, I don't think you're crazy. I just think you're forcing a sort of cleverness. Just forced. That's it. That's all. It's not real. It doesn't sound like, oh, I'm, I'm a lunatic. Not really. You just don't sound funny to me. I don't know. Maybe I'm, I'm judging too harshly. People say that with, oh, you're so harsh on people trying to be funny. Well, no, I'm not, though. I don't even know. I don't really pick up on it is the problem. I, even when it's a stand-up act, I go, I'm going to the, I feel like I'm going to a lecture. And then it's like, all right, well, I don't understand really what they're talking about. But I'm, being, I'm being silly. I don't, I laugh at everything. It's a social thing. I'm not going to be the only one not laughing. I, I understand that. I've watched the YouTube videos of social experiments. I'm not going to be sitting there all, it's so easy to laugh because of ner mirror neurons. I just wait for people to, around me to start laughing and then I'm, I'm all there, I'm where, with them. Now, sometimes it happens in movies, you get caught up and you get excited and you leave the movie and you go, that movie sucked, I wonder why I was cheering and everything. But you do get caught up in the excitement of it. And I have, any crowd like that, I've gone and used the time machine and the football games are very similar to both the old gladiator things and even way before that, they would have these things where they'd be just watching dinosaurs eat grass. And you think, well, that's not very exciting. Yeah, but people got worked up because there weren't any people. The only thing you have are time travelers sitting around watching dinosaurs. And I guess they just get so worked up by it. And they think, oh, people in the future want to do this. And they have those, all those dinosaur movies. And I guess they did okay. But they had to make them into horror movies. Why is that? Just make a dinosaur museum. People come and enjoy it. You can have a little drama going on in the gift shop or something. The dinosaurs don't have to eat nobody. I mean, think about it. Let's say, say oh, it's, it's uh, you know, whatever park. Name it Triassic Park. And um, I got to work out. That reminds me. Work out my Triassics. And... It's just a park, and the dinosaurs, you go and you look at them, and it's uh, wonderful, and they seem to be happy. And then the stuff, there's drama going on in the gift shop, though. I'll tell you, Mary Ellen. Mary Ellen runs the place with an iron fist, and she really is. I mean, is she taking the job seriously, and she has respect for it, or is it emotional abuse? Because the way she treats some of the employees, and she's just really hard to get through to. Now, I've seen her outside of work stuff, and she seems a little less intense, you know, but when she's at work, my goodness, she's a real monster. Plenty of drama there. So they don't need to involve the dinosaurs, and dinosaurs have had enough bad press as monsters over the years being made out into dragons. It's not a dragon, it's just a species, a long dead species. And when you find bones like that, let's say you're an old English Say, oh, I'm an Englishman finding these bones, and they look to me to be fresh bones of a dragon. But they aren't fresh bones of a dragon. They're really old bones of a dinosaur. And this would happen when Englishmen would visit New Jersey. And they'd see these hadrosaurs, and they'd think, what? This is some sort of mythical creature. And this may be the type that King Arthur and all his friends... I don't remember. They had a show, a Canadian show called um, Little King Arthur or something, where they're all animals. And 
Prince Buster was one. <laughs> okay, so if you know who Prince Buster is, you see, I've just made a joke with uh, Arthur and Buster and all those all mixed up into one like that, and I made myself laugh. That's because my that's me being alone. That's what it's like to be alone, is you just, it's so easy to make yourself laugh sometimes. Just talk out loud. You don't do it a lot when you're alone because you think, well, that's madness. There's no one to speak to. But I crashed the time machine into a desert island one time, and I said, just keep talking. You'll talk your way out of this. And it keeps you, you know, sort of alert, and you can focus. And I have to do it anyway because I have to talk myself through life. You know, open the door, do this. Shut the door now or check the lights. So I have to do all that anyway. I speak it out loud. It helps me hear it. And then we go, right? Now, I'm playing this week. That's not a very good segue. Neither is the one that just has the two wheels and the balance contraption that you lean forward and you go. It's like a go-kart. It isn't either. So, you know, things either go together or they don't. There's nothing, not all. Did you ever use one of those simpleton movie editing programs and they have these transitions and one of them's a fade and you go, oh, that looks pretty good. And you put it in there and you go, I'll put that in with it. No, then you realize not all cuts need a fade and it's a pretty rare thing. So that's like a segue. You know, things can just pop into existence too. They do all the time. Things do literally pop into existence and out of existence. Yes, they may. There's so much that you don't understand about physics in the universe because it's not true and because I'm making it up right now. So there's no way you can understand it. And you go, I do anyway because I can intuit it. That's true. Touche. I stand miscorrected. That's all right. Look, I know I'm not an expert. I just like to say things with great confidence sometimes because when will I get a chance to ever? That's the thing. We all, inside, we all feel a little bit of Barney Fife, kind of feel like a failure. So there's this, uh, you know, any chance to kind of be officious or something makes us feel good. Get a little puffed up and sort of, <clears throat> maybe I'm important. Hello, everybody. And after a certain age, you go, I must be important. Look, I'm ugly. Say, so, oh, I'm ugly and old. Therefore, I must have accomplished something. That's a lot of... And then you say, well, uh, maybe I'll just speak at a university or something. And I'll get, is, are you hearing me all right in the back? I shall lecture now. Now, uh, for those of you who have read my latest book, and uh, there can't be many of you, I wonder if any, I think that about, about some books. I wonder if there's any book that actually no one's read. Everybody's lying about, I mean, besides the Bible. If there's a book that everybody's lying about having read, I wonder. I don't know. It probably was, you know, we're going through a wave of anti-intellectualism again. So people do not brag about what books they've read. They brag about what they haven't. So these eyes have never touched a book. But it was for a while there, you know, people would say, oh, I read some very difficult book. Uh, what did you read? I read some Pinchon. Did you? Yes. What did you read? Let me think for a moment. I forget. But uh, I read Faulkner. Which, what, what, all of, all of it. As I lay reading. No, I don't think it's as I lay reading. That's all right. 
I read a lot of the obscure stuff, but people don't really brag about that anymore. They'll they'll, you know, downplay their their intellect. Oh no, I, there's no books here. I think that's coming around. The, you know, are there books on this premises? No, there's no books. Only the books that we're that we're supposed to have, that we buy from all the incredible leaders that we have now and their biographies. I have all of those, and you can check the bookshelf. Uh, are any of these hollowed out? No, none of them are hollowed out, and, and they have little, uh, what would you be hiding from? Cards? I don't know. <laughs> it's my, my Iranian friend was like, we'd, they'd come looking at the house, and we'd throw the cards in the samovar. I go, man, that's exotic. That's exotic. So they don't like cards, so it's like they're a little bit Pentecostal, and then you throw it in the samovar. It's a tea culture. Wow. I could see that down here, but it'd be, you'd throw it in the, we had a sun tea jar, and we'd throw the cards in there. They weren't even real cards, they were Rook. We have a game, there's a game called Rook, and it's po it was um, popular here in this area because of, there was an objection to cards, but then there was sort of a compromise. Okay, cards, but there can't be any faces on them, which sounds sort of like, Islam or something, but I don't know. It's not. It's country Christians saying, no, it can't have any. So they, uh, but they still wanted to play like, you know, whist or something. So you still want to, I want to play bid whist, but I don't want to look at pictures. Say, so, well, Rook is for you because it's just got the numbers. And then that's, that's acceptable. Now, some people don't approve of cards at all. It's, a sin, it's sinful. And I want to know, and, and it, show me a holy book where it even mentions them. I'd be surprised. I mean, I'm sure they had cards and everything, but, I, you know, to think of mentioning them in your, you know, let's, let's look at a list of sins. All right, you know, hurting people and cheating and everything. And also checkers or drafts. No, not checkers. Why checkers? Oh, just I hate it. You could see that. Maybe that would find its way in. All right, Tony wants to put in checkers because he just personally doesn't like it. Anybody else have a little picadillo they'd like to add to our religious convictions? Yes. Oh, there's some hats that really infuriate me. I'm sure that would be. I could see that. If the people made, if a lot of people my age um, got into power in the 80s or something, they would have been like, or 90s, they'd be like, no, you can't wear pork, pork pie hats anymore. Yeah, okay, you know, because I think they got pretty, but I don't know, you know, I guess there'd be some clothing. There's, people have strong feelings about fashion, as you know, and they make uh, rules worldwide about it, and it'd be great to get into just lapel width, you know, have that in there, specify lapel a person's lapel should be no wider than um, four inches, but no more narrow than two or something like that. And then have a literal police force out there with, with measuring tape, taping people's, you know, what's your inseam? It'd be great because they'd still be able to, you know, harass people and, and, and kind of violate them. But it'd be all math-based, and I like that. You know, sometimes you just need things quantified. Just tell me. I hate all this subjective stuff. Am I in or am I out? Oh, my goodness. Oh, it's tough to be a human being.
And I, I make light of it because just of all the billions of, or not billions, but all the thousands of years of human suffering, seems like billions, billions of seconds maybe, because, um, you know, a few seconds of suffering can be, can be horrible. So, um, but oh my goodness, so my heart goes out and I just want to uh, hug everybody. That would be my, my wrestling gimmick would just be a, a well-meaning, affectionate hug that goes on too long and then get, gets the opponent really nervous and they try to get out of it, then they find they can't. It's almost like a snake or something like that. Now it's too late. Oh, this snake loves me. It's wrapping itself around me. Uh-oh. People really do that in jujitsu and everything. I don't have any fighting skills because I thought, well, I don't want to fight or anything. And there's so many survival techniques that don't involve actual hand-to-hand combat. You'd be so surprised. Oh, I think it's a very, it's, uh, if I told you, they'd, they'd come for me. But there's so many things you can do to self-preserve that don't involve, um, you know, right, I'm doing it right now. Look at that. Nobody coming for me. It's so wonderful. They will after I say this, my goodness. But then I do all my, I have all these camouflage options. And I have little hidey holes all over the place. And um, I just pretend to be different people. Also, um, I have really, I know a lot of really powerful people from college who do me favors. No, that's not me. That would be wonderful. I've skipped that part. They didn't tell me, so do better. They weren't giving me reasons to do better in school. They would just say, do better, or get into a good college. But they didn't say, get into a good college, meet all these people, get you into elite, you know, circles. They didn't say that. And so you think, well, I'm just not I'm, I'm going to go to college. I want to just, I'm going to concentrate on, re, on working in retail. So they don't, they don't tell you these things. I will, though. Oh, bless you. Do what you can to survive. That's what I say. Life is so much shorter um, than the brochure tells you. Hey, listen, here's the second half of my live show at Monty Hall. Do you remember that? We got up to Act 1. Here's Act 2. You ready for I should have given you more. Uh, Act 2. Paris. Somewhere between 1880 and 1920s. Somewhere in there. I'm roaming around. I don't know what year it is. I keep bouncing around. And so I'm trapped in this Paris that has nothing but gangs, these roaming gangs of artists, proto-dottists, dottists, proto-surrealists, surrealists, Alfred Jerry Green Candle Boys. <laughs> and they're roaming around and they're doing crazy things. And I'm thinking, oh, this is great. I will come here for inspiration. I, I came here to look for something specific. But while I'm here, I'm going to look into something. There was a wild man back then, one of the artists, crazier, wilder than Alfred Jerry, absolutely dangerous, insane, new ideas. And he was an actor. And his name was DeForest Kelly. Now, it's not the one you remember. It's the one that Star Trek is actually based on. And I had an opportunity to see him perform his uh, masterpiece, uh, William Star Trek's McCoy. 
The soothest hearts that frailty may support lie rooted in the chests of Vulcan men. With manner calm and palmer's weed adorn, they pledge to neither utter spleen nor cry. These stoic greenly devils make me wretch. You've opportunity enough to fix this misalignment of the ship's command, my love, and so by swift and silent move you made this very night repair the injustice of this Vulcan's rank. What? Murder? McCoy, you are weak. And lady, you are treachery itself. She's right. If I were more than a simple country doctor. Here comes the goodly captain they call Kirk, resplendent in his noble shirt of gold with swagger bold and booming steady voice. He shouts, warp speed increase her steady as she goes. There is Spock, the devil by his side, usurping that which is rightly my own. Is this a phaser I see before me? The handle towards my hand? Come, let me clutch thee. I have thee not, and yet I see thee still. Art thou fatal vision, sensible to feeling as the sight, or art thou a, 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 a false ray gun? It's been 120 years, that's why I don't remember it exactly. <laughs> you know what, you know what, you know what, meter doesn't help you memorize something. You know, it's better to do like, like a kind of my dinner with Andre thing. We just memorize the gist. And I wish Shakespeare was more like that. And they just kind of go out and tell you what kind of what's going on. I don't need it to be musical. But... I was inspired by this, and I, was, I wanted to hang with these wild minds, you know, because part of being an artist is telling yourself you are one, you know, getting excited about something, trying to do something romantic. And I thought, if I hang out at these cafes, this will be wonderful. And so I did, and I hung out there, and I was with the Alfred Jerry boys, and they were like, you want some ether? And I go, I don't know. Try some ether. And I don't want ether. And they said, have you read our plays? A lot of us... This one I wrote when I was 12, but I've just now recently got it produced. I go, no, I know that's fine, that's great, but you know, I really am here because I'm interested in John Singer Sargent. Now, the Sargents are American family that moved to Europe. They were living over here, and they a uh, young couple, Mr. and Mrs. Sargent, and they lost their first child. But you know, you read about in history books and everything, if you're reading a biography and they go, lost their first child. But that's really very hard, horrible thing. And uh, it could end right there, you know? It's, uh, we gloss over those things, but they were, uh, they were affected. Their life changed, especially uh, Mrs. Sargent. She became very, very, very depressed. And she said to her husband, I'd like to move east. And he said, Ocean City? And I said, no, no. And he's like, what the, this, world, what's wrong with Philadelphia? And she said, oh, there's no time. We need to go. So they loaded up the truck and they moved to Italy. And they, he was a doctor, he quit his job. And it's not, they weren't super rich, but they had enough to go, I guess at the time, it was you could go and just kind of live in Italy. If, so they did, and they moved, to, they moved to Florence, and they had 
John Singer Sargent. Now, Mrs. Sargent really was into art, and she was terrible. She was a really terrible artist, but she really loved it. You know people like that. And you, I think you may be looking at one. <laughs> people whose love of art absolutely exceeds their talent. She didn't stop trying. You know, she would do watercolors and everything. But, you know, when that happens, you think, well, I, maybe I should force this on my child because it's not working out for me. And maybe I didn't start young enough or something. So she decided she was going to expose her children, and specifically John, to uh, a lot of artists and art. And you know, when they're in Florence and they're in Rome, and so they have access to these things. And they would send the young boy out to sketch. And, and like any young boy, it's like, I'm going to go and draw penises. But there were no bathroom stalls at the time. All that he had access to were classical statues. So he'd go out with his sketchbook, and while he was drawing the penises, he thought, well, you know what? Look, I might as well draw the whole <laughs> statue. And that's how his, his art started to evolve, and he would draw these forms, and it's like having a model, you know? It's, a, it's just a nude stone dude uh, that you can go visit. And in Florence, apparently, unlike Rome, they didn't have uh, fig, they had pasted fig leaves of a lot of Roman statues and, the, and, and, and Florence, they were like, that's not bad. We know what's under the fig leaf. It's ridiculous. And, and they, I believe they glued them on too, which is just horrifying. For the, if the statue is even like 0.1% sentient, it's awful. I know they're not alive, but I don't know. They look so real. I don't want to hurt any part of them. Like department store mannequins are the same way. Always apologize if you bump one. <laughs> so he had access to all these things. Now, I don't think they let you technically, you know, uh, sit there and draw them. You know, so he kind of just had to sneak it, but he got better and better. Now his mother wanted to introduce him to other artists, too, so she'd have these salons. You all have those, don't you? We have salons, and we have all our... I have them, but I have them with tradesmen because I don't really need any more art. Be, but I do need some plumbing work done. So we'll all have them over and we'll all discuss things. They'll be, oh, tell me about your drywall experience and things like that. Uh, and uh, uh, get free advice and everything like that. But she had the kind where you have eccentric artists over, you know, to, as role models for the children to show them that not everybody is an uptight doctor like dad. <laughs> and it was that kind of fun dad, they poke fun at him, and said, oh, all this art stuff. But he was also encouraging. He liked the hiking. He wanted his son to uh, sketch men in knee socks and things, <laughs> which he also did. The sergeant did that as a young man, uh, the, the alpine thing like that. But he, I think he preferred the, the, the classic statues. So I decided maybe I'll go to one of these and, and, and meet these people, you know, I'll sneak in. And I mean, they weren't all famous people, so I could pass. I'll just, I'll twirl my mustache or something and, and speak with a, a funny affected voice and I'll meet the sergeants and I'll meet them and I'll be able to speak to John Singer sergeants and I'll sneak in and I could imagine myself there. And I would say, well, what, you know, what have you been sketching? You know, show me a sketchbook and I'll go, oh, I, hmm. That's fantastic. You're actually very good, and I'm very, I'm happy for you, and I feel bad for myself because I love it when kids are really good at a thing that I've been trying to do for years and years and years. 
prodigy in music, anything like that, kids that speak many languages or um, there's a, uh, a young person that was going to do this show tonight and, I, I, and they do a better job and I, <laughs> I asked if they could switch weeks. <laughs> uh, but I went, to the, I went to the salon with the, with the, at, the, at their house and, uh, and, and started to talk to the young man. And he said, you know, I think my mom always wanted me to be an artist and I really wanted, I'm, now I'm in love. The, it's been lit, the passion is there. I wanna recreate all these feelings I get when I draw. And so he got to the age where he was gonna to go to an actual art school and the Florence School was closed for repair because so, I think somebody dropped like an M80 in the toilet. <laughs> now it could have been me because it was one of those turns of fate. They never got there, maybe he wouldn't have been as famous. So he had to go to Paris to look for a teacher. And he found one. And he found one in a very flamboyant, wonderful painting, painter named Carolus Duran, he called himself. And he was named after the American actor Carol O'Connor and Duran Duran. <laughs> and the Duran Duran comes from, I think, Barbarella, the Jane Fonda. Uh, movie. I don't know if he knew Jane Fonda. I found myself standing across from Jane Fonda once. Did you ever uh, suddenly uh, at a party that you don't belong at and maybe somebody invited you there because they go, oh, I have to go get something. Will you step into this party for me, uh, with me for a minute and you walk in and there's like Nixon or something. <laughs> well in this case it was Jane Fonda and so I was, I was standing outside uh, which and I'm not a, I was not there I'm not a celebrity and I was not there as one I was there as who are you kind of one of those things I go my, my friend is your hairdresser <laughs> it was something like that and uh, I was standing there and uh, we we're talking and her her grandchild who is now an adult and I hope not here uh, walked uh, in the circle of adults talking pantless and pooed. And I didn't know if it was prearranged. <laughs> you know, I have not like hung out with the fond as much. So I don't know if it's a fonda thing. I don't know if like, you know, oh Henry used to do that. <laughs> and now now the grandson does it and it's a kind of so uh, I, I didn't know what to do and I felt maybe I thought, well now maybe it's embarrassing for the toddler. And so I pretended that I was pooing. <laughs> And I don't know if I was trying to be funny. You know one of those things where you go, I don't know. Well, here we go. Because <laughs> everybody wasn't really joking. They weren't standing around joking, you know. And they weren't doing like, they weren't doing like clowning things like that or mime. So I was miming, pooing. And um, Jane Fonda uh, looked at me without a smile on her face and said, you're funny. <laughs> and I don't know if it was an accusation, but I thought, oh, thank you. Jane Fonda, Jane Fonda has nothing really to do with, with, with Carlos Duran. But <laughs> what a fabulous person he was though. He was, like a lot of people at the time, obsessed with 
Velasquez, the painter, who had been generations before, and Velasquez painted the, you know, the Infanta and everything, and the thing they liked about it was the immediacy, the, 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 the vibrancy, the painting, the drawing with paint, the same style that I had seen. Well, Carlos Duran, he loved that too, and he was very, very good at it. And he had uh, a beautiful studio in Paris where he would bring rich people because portraiture ends up being the greatest way to get money if you paint like that. So paint rich people. Why would you want artists to starve? Why wouldn't you want people to know this person's paintings? They deserve to get paid, and there was a lot of people that deserved to be separated from their money. And so he painted them. He would bring them to his studio, and his studio was gorgeous, you know, it had musical instruments and a harpsichord and beautiful carpets and paintings everywhere. And it was one of these, come in with a smoking jacket or something, and I am the great artist, Carlos Durant. He would be born a poor kid, you know, so it was all a beautiful act. He, like we all do, we recreate ourselves sometimes and we pretend that we have a past that we don't. Then he had his real studio where he has students, and that was a couple blocks away, and that's where he taught John Singer Sargent, and Sargent excelled at this style, and he became clearly his best student, and then he became better than the master, and he would enter painting contests, and he kept winning them. He won them over and over. He was one of, if not the best painter in Europe, undeniably. And then, in 1884, there was a riot. Not literally, but he painted a portrait of a beautiful rich woman, and we know it as Madame X. And it's a painting, that's, it's a woman standing in this black dress and, uh, with straps, and she's doing this. <laughs> and because it was 1884, this was scandalous. She looked vaguely sassy. <laughs> like she's thinking about sex. Fully clothed. You can see her shoulder now. He did, when he first painted it, the strap had fallen down, indicating sluttiness, apparently, <laughs> and not just like how to keep those up in the first place. So he really had to, he had to repaint it. He painted it up again. Okay, is that the problem? She's nude. No, it's just the strap is down. Put it back up again. Is she now dressed? So there's, when you see this painting, you think this cannot possibly have been any controversy, but it was. It was extremely controversial, and the, the person who modeled for it was not happy. They were not happy with the controversy. They didn't want to be thought to have uh, bad morals or something. This is a rich lady, and uh, rich people don't have any kind of bad morals or anything. They're always a paragon of virtue, aren't they? They're the best among us, the least saltiest of the earth. And so there's this this terrible uh, commotion, and, and he's criticized. Sargent becomes uh, the, the target of this uh, criticism for really just wanting to paint this beautiful person in a way that's... Now we're used to, like, sassy poses and rich ladies on TikTok or something, <laughs> right? And this is just the same thing, except he's doing it, but he's doing it with such skill. Uh, it's amazing. And so I says, hey, John, I'm headed back to the future. And he's like, can I use that as a painting title? I said, I wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's going to cause like immense confusion. 
But I would start giving them titles because people are giving them really dumb titles. When you say, oh, I don't know what it's called, they'll go, okay, like lady sitting. So don't, you know, give it like a proper title, even if it's creative. And so I returned home. Act three. It's really act one. You're absolutely correct. I almost didn't want to confuse my, myself either. I am in the museum in Cincinnati, and I don't know what to do. You know, I came here to get a feeling back. I came here to get a feeling back. I'm never sure about my memories, and I'm never sure about the past. So when I chase something that's in the past, I don't even know what I'm chasing. So when I went in the museum and the painting wasn't there, time stopped or time started. And I had to make a decision. Now I thought, how does one make a decision? And I remembered that, that Adrian de Groot had written a book called Thought and Choice in Chess. In the 1940s, he wanted to examine how chess players make decisions. And so he did an in-depth study, and he discovered this, and it's very interesting. So they look at the board, and then they think about what the possibilities are. What moves have been made in the past? What do I know about chess? And then they kind of think about what would happen if they made that move. And then they make the move, and then they see if it was the right one. <laughs> and I thought, that's what everyone does about everything that they do. <laughs> it's actually weirdly easier in chess. <laughs> because there's this limited amount of choices. So even though there's a lot, it's still not everything when I go to make a choice, I have to think about the entirety of my past. What do I know about life, not chess? And life goes way off the board. And the pieces, they don't even move the same way each time. Then I got to figure out which piece that I don't know what they are, where I'm going to put that. So I'm in a state of terrible confusion. I don't know how to move forward because I don't know what happened in the past, really. I thought I'd ask somebody, you know, that's what they always tell you to do, ask somebody. And I have been stuck for weeks in a, like in a Home Depot because of embarrassment. <laughs> and I'm just going to keep looking and I don't want to talk to anybody. It used to be worse when the salespeople knew more. Now it's not so bad because, <laughs> you know, because it used to be you'd go, where's it? They go, it's right there. Now you ask, like, oh, I don't know. Like, okay. That's cool. I'm not intimidated. Sometimes when I find it, I'll go back and tell them. I say, I found the, I found this, the socket I was looking to. It's on eight, so if anybody. I don't care. There is a, 
I've never seen this before in a docent now. And in the, in the museums, they've got guards and, and, and tour guides and everything, and docents and people that you can talk to. And, um, you know, mostly they're just there so you don't steal any of the art. And, but sometimes they can answer questions about it. They know a little something about it. And I saw one of the docents do a uh, rhyme of the ancient mariner on some people, which I'd never seen. So he, he just sort of grabbed some people and said, do you want to see an optical illusion or something like that? And he pulled them into this other room and he gave them a spiel about these paintings were on it, unsolicited. Because usually he said, could you tell me something about this painting? But this guy just grabbed them and, and held them there. And I had, I, my painting was gone. I, have a, I had a missing painting complaint. <laughs> and I was in a bit of a state because I had come there for unbridled joy. And what I was dealing with was unexpected disappointment. And they're different. And one of them, you know, was ex was unexpected. So I, I waited, and I had I sat and I watched the the ancient mariner do this to be. You know, don't be afraid. Grab them. Don't be afraid of seamen. He said, and he grabbed them, and he gave them. He, he put a CD in their hands. Uh, buy my CD. And, oh, it's it's blank, but now I have to. And um, so the, I mean, that technique is everywhere, but I'd never seen it in a museum. But he, uh, uh, so and I'm waiting and waiting, and he never, he just wouldn't, he wouldn't, uh, and I'm getting I'm more and more nervous, and maybe am I not going to see my, my painting? Did they just move? I mean, if they just moved it, I, I, I looked around for it again. I came back. He's still going on, and if you stand here, you'll see his wife, and that was painted later, and, and he wouldn't shut up, and he wouldn't shut up, and then I found another one. I found another docent, and he didn't seem to be doing anything, and I said, oh, oh, my God. Thank God I found you. I have you all right, sir. No, I am most certainly not all right. I came here to see John Singer Sargent's 1882 painting, Girl with Fan. And it is not where it usually is. And he said, oh, no, she's traveling. And I, and I thought, he said, she's traveling. And I imagine she'd popped out like the Harry Potter. <laughs> she peeled herself off. And I go, well, the whole, in her context, though, I hope, right? She's all together with the frame. Frame's gorgeous. Don't lose the frame. But she was on, they tour around. You know, the paintings travel around so people could see them. I saw when I, I saw pre-Raphaelite paintings in Atlanta at the High Museum, which is a wonderful place until it was robbed by Gollum and Kilmeister, who took a lot of the African art. But I don't know. I feel mixed feelings about it. So uh, I, I said, you know, where, where is she? And I said, it's one of my favorite paintings. Oh, I like it too. He goes, but you know, he said, that's early, Sergeant. And I said, what? He goes, there's a better Sergeant in the museum. And I said, don't mess with me, man. <laughs> don't, not in this state. And he goes, yeah, he got, he got better. He got more sophisticated. He changed. And you know, even before I saw the painting, I started to think about that. He said, one was the younger sergeant, and one was the older sergeant. And I was looking at the cross-section, you know, because, because what we are at any given time is, is a cross-section of ourselves. 
But where we really are is the whole stretch of ourselves over time. And you see, John had become tired of all that controversy. He'd become tired of painting rich people. And he went and he lived with his sister and her kids, his nieces. And he said, the painting is down there on the left. And he goes, and it's very small, probably about like that. I don't know what size that is. Five, uh, what I call jubies. It's my own measurement. By two, I don't know what it is. But it's not as big as the life-size uh, girl with fan. And so I went down to look at it. He goes, it's on the left, and it's called Two Girls Fishing. And I was like, oh, another super creative title that I bet he didn't come up with. So I walked down, and I looked at it. And it's two young girls sitting on the bank of a river, and they're fishing, and they've got some fishing tackle there, and they're wearing dresses. You know, it's 1914, so they look like, you know, teenage girls in 1914, or maybe they're slightly younger, and the light is, is sparkling off the water. And I looked at the painting, and I was overcome. The first thing that struck me was the, the face of one of the girls. It was in almost profile, and it was probably about that big, you know, and it may have been two brush strokes. And with those two brush strokes, he conveyed that she was one of the most beautiful people. I was stunned by the beauty, but I was even more struck by how little it took for him to express that with his brush. And then I looked at every detail of the painting, and it was all like that. It was like he was looking at the scene for me, and he was looking at it with the keenest of eyes. And then he was using a wizard-like skill to mix the, the paint on his brush. And when his brush touched the canvas, it became magic, just like the sun touching the object in real life. And the whole thing is like that, without mistake, Every stroke has intention. And I understand that when he painted, and they would make fun of him a little, he would, he would kind of rock like that. Because everything had intention. And he was looking at the scene, and he was breaking it up for me. And you know, it happened. And then the weeping starts. <laughs> and you start to cry because you realize that it's the surprise. This isn't the first time that I saw the other one. This is a new first time. This is a brand new experience. I couldn't have predicted this one. You know, when I, I talked to the docent, he said, uh, yeah, I love that, I love that painting. I've wanted, to, I've wanted to steal it, you know? <laughs> and I don't think he was kidding. But he said, you know, I work here so I can see it every day. And I said, yeah, but don't, I mean, don't you want to, like, what if you start crying so hard you vomit? <laughs> and he's like, what? I'm like, oh, nothing. <laughs> but that you maybe want to do in private. But I'm with you. I'm glad you didn't steal it. You know, I, I, I have fantasies about, about art theft, 
you know, about rescuing art, not, you know, not selling it to, to billionaires worldwide or something to put in their vault, but, you know, just to taking something and having it under my bed or something like that. But, you know, you can't do that because it won't give you the same feeling. If that was on my wall, it wouldn't look the same and it wouldn't have the same impact. Everybody has to be able to see it. And see, Sargent was at that age. He was, uh, you know, by then he was in his, his late 50s. And, you know, he became famous very young. So his, you know, 30s were spent being super famous. He's kind of done. You know, he just wanted to hang out with his family and look at beautiful things and paint beautiful paintings. And when I thought about that, I thought about Tim Conway. <laughs> I guess, you know, like the whole, all of A Christmas Carol is based on, you know, maybe you see something and you eat something bad and then you have a nightmare about it. Right, Wizard of Oz, you know, I just have this nightmare about the field hands, which uh, we all have, haven't you had that? You, fall, you get sick, you fall asleep, and you, I dream of the, I dreamt the servants were magical beings. No, none of us, none of us do that. I had a weird dream where 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 Ken was a wizard, but it's uh, I, I don't know about it. He might have really have done that, and I missed it. I don't know why I thought about Tim Conway because you know I guess my opinion had changed him of over time of myself since I am Tim Conway, right? There's 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 a Tim Conway that can see his whole life. You know, he'll never be able to see that. And I'm sure he felt beloved when he was alive, but he'll never see his life all at once like that. Only I, a Tim Conway, a level above, can see that. You know? He sees it all sliced up, and we all see our lives sliced up because they're really just like a long pork roll. And you know, or a long ta Taylor time ham that must be sliced, and by itself, it's useless. If you would say, like, oh, I'd like uh, some Taylor ham on my hamburger, and they put the entirety of it, <laughs> it would be impractical. It must be sliced. It must be segmented. These things can't happen all at once. I have done shows in this space now for a few years. There was a gap there, but every time I come back, I'm trying to recapture something. I always think I am. I, think, I hope it'll be like the last time. It felt so great to speak to everybody. It felt so great to uh, feel their appreciation. And I hope that happens this time, but I'm not going to hold my breath. And uh, because you don't want to have those kind of expectations, so you just really hope that they're going to like what you have to say, and they're going to laugh in the right places, and they're going to, um, and when they don't, don't get upset and then forget what you're saying. Because <laughs> that happens too. And remember that it's, it's all one continuum. But there is something special about times that don't happen very often, like seeing a painting or being together like this. You know, uh, it wouldn't be special if it happens all the time. And it's a wonderful to have something that you think is going to be the same, but then it ends up maybe being slightly different. And it's that defying of the expectation that gives me the real joy. So I'm not going to do it. I know you think, what's it going to do? Are you going to do something weird? I am now going to do a, an illusion. 
And if you would look under your chairs, there's a letter from your dead relative <laughs> that's in there, written in their hand. How did he do it? Well, you know, I have no scruples. So I don't mind doing things like that, and I don't mind you know, playing on your sympathy and all. No, there's nothing, there's nothing that's going to distinguish this from any other performance, except that some of you that were here for other ones are now dead, but no, not all of you. I know that's a horrible thing. People go, why do you talk about that so much? Because it's weird. I mean, I, uh, uh, it's strange, and I'm, I'm afraid some of you, I mean, I don't know. Odds are, you know, maybe you won't be here next year, but it's probably because you don't like me. Not because <laughs> not you'll be dead. But a couple times it's, it was death, and then, you know, and then I would come out, and it did have, this happened one year. I came out, and I was speaking just like I'm speaking, and I looked down at a chair that the year before it had a friend in it, and that year he had passed away, and I just kept looking at that chair, and it wasn't the right person in it. Bless your heart, I'm sure you're all nice people. <laughs> but you can't be, you'll never be my dead friend. <laughs> and I, I left the stage, and I, I, the joy that I normally feel, you know, I know I come out and we, we, we hug and then, uh, you know, you give me donuts. One year somebody gave me donuts. I don't know why I remember that. Beautiful. And um, a ruler. Somebody gave me a ruler. But this, that year, I, I went backstage and I started to weep. Because I suddenly couldn't stop thinking about my friend, and I couldn't stop thinking about the absence, the thing that wasn't there. And it's very, very obvious, you know. It's a really easy lesson that, you know, don't concentrate on what's not there. What you have is remarkable. What is here is amazing. So I want you to think about that, about the performance that I, that I just gave. You know, you say, well, it doesn't seem as complete as I'd like, and it doesn't tie together in the way that I, that I would like. <laughs> You know, I'm sorry. <laughs> it can't all be, it's not all going to be perfect. You know, a room with a view is, might have an odor. That's why I'm, <laughs> and it's just, I like the combination. So I went into the city yesterday, and the pictures, the pictures don't really convey the urine always. <laughs> you have to be there for it. You say, wow, that's amazing, man, people are great. Look what, what humans can do. So, and then you get to smell what humans can do as well. But I like that because that comes closer, you know, to this idea that we are the, the, the entirety of ourselves. And as human beings, we're not just the entirety of ourselves and our lives, but of biological life too. We're part of something that's, that's bigger, that's all connected, and we may come and go like that, but it's this large flow and this wonderful thing that we do together. And I am so glad to be doing it. And when I realized that my painting wasn't the same, when I realized that Tim Conway wasn't as funny to me as when I was n 10? <laughs> 10, the summer of when I was 10 maybe even? I feel like it was a very narrow space. You know, so, oh, because they put them together with, with Don Knotts for a while and they did some movies together, which were a lot like the Jimmy Durante Buster Keaton movies which was, I don't know if you saw any of those. They paired them up, and it was a, just a brilliant pairing. 
of two beloved figures. So as I re-examine my past, and I re-examine the fact that I base so much of my future pursuit of joy on that past, I have to let go a little bit and untether myself. I have to drift into the future sometimes without my, without my armor, without my expectations. I have to drift into it as the incomplete Tim Conway, the Tim Conway that can never see his whole self, and I give myself over to the experience, and I let myself feel it, and I say, it's going to be different this, Tim. <laughs> Thank you. Part of it. When I was so, I did the first show I did at the, the Monty Hall wasn't open yet, and I I um I did it uh, in the a place called the Hi Fi Bar, and uh, you who was there? You right here? Okay, you were there. So now I have to be kind of semi-truthful. <laughs> That's a drag, man. I'm sorry. Could you pretend you weren't there? But I thought I'd be like, I thought I'd be extra weird because I thought, oh, I'm in the East Village, you know, and I'm used to, you know, maybe I should be uh, like weird. So I started um, kind of running around. I'd run out and back, and there's a security guard there. It's like a security guy, and he didn't understand like avant garde <laughs> performance. So he thought I was the kind of nuts that doesn't get paid to run in and out of a bar, like, making noises. And, um, you know, I don't know what it was. I think I was talking about Wally Cox or something. It was, yeah, God bless me. <laughs> so that was part, see, that was part of it. So I'm going to walk off stage, and I think it just keeps going because of my social anxiety. So I think the performance will continue as I say, it's lovely to meet you. But I might not, I might be myself, so we don't, I don't know. So I just didn't want, I don't want you to know whether I am or not. <laughs> so I don't want you to know where the performance ends and begins. Because you paid a lot of money and I'm embarrassed. Because <laughs> it used to be $5. <laughs> and then I thought, well, five, I paid $5, you know? What is that? I'm going to do sock puppets. But now I felt like, you know, I better do something. So I'm going to step off the stage now. Never had this where they 
Will you say goodbye and you keep going? You are listening to Miracle Nutrition with Hardy White on WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, 91.9 in Rockland County in New York City, New York, and online at WFMU.org, worldwide, freeform radio. Thank you for listening. I will see you again next week. It's too long.
Man! 